I mean, I think probably the the main thing that has made it so that I've done anything cool in climbing or riding or anything is the fact that I was actually quite terrible at everything growing up. So I learned that the only way to get things done was to was to like double down and grit it out and suffer through it. And that's like my one skill in this world, you know, like I actually wasn't a very talented climber naturally. And right, you know, I was like a horrible student in school. And, uh, you know, I think if I were, if, if my eighth grade English teacher learned that I wrote a book, they would like drop over debt. You know, they would never, they never could imagine that that would happen. Yeah. Um, but I did, you know, learn to kind of focus on things and work really hard. So. Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check us out online at blisterreview.com. Today on the podcast, we're talking with Tommy Caldwell, one of the best big wall climbers of all time. And while freeing the Dawn Wall on Yosemite's El Capitan might be the feat that Tommy's best known for, his catalog of accomplishments in the climbing world is ridiculous. In addition to the Dawn Wall, Tommy has the first free ascents of El Cap's Mirror Wall, Magic Mushroom, and Dihedral Wall, the first free enchainment of El Cap's Nose and Free Rider, the first ascent of Flex Luthor in Colorado, and the first ascent of the Fitz Traverse in Patagonia. But Tommy is more than just an all-time great climber, He's also just published a truly excellent book called The Push that John Krakauer calls the most insightful book about climbing I've ever read and quite possibly the most enjoyable. So yeah, pretty high praise from Krakauer. The Push is an autobiography structured around some of Tommy's landmark achievements and also around one very traumatic event. While climbing in Kyrgyzstan back in 2000, Tommy and his team were kidnapped at gunpoint and held captive for six days, which forced Tommy to undertake an extremely difficult action that allowed his group to escape. I sat down with Tommy at his home in Estes Park, Colorado, to talk about a number of things in his book and a whole bunch of other stuff, including the discipline of writing and Alex Honnold's recent free solo of Free Rider and the contemplation of risk that that feat raises. Oh, and it's also probably interesting and relevant that, in the middle of the pretty serious conversation that Tommy and I were having about risk and ultimate consequences, Tommy's son Fitz burst into the room and makes a cameo on the podcast. Tommy and I also discuss the desire for balance with the reality that great achievements always seem to require an obsessive focus and a complete lack of balance. And finally... He and I talk about the future of climbing, which then leads us into some bigger questions about technology, raising kids, and basically modern society in general. You know, nothing big. This episode of the Blister Podcast is brought to you by our friends at High Brew Coffee. It was just about a year ago when High Brew first saved my life by keeping me awake at the wheel on an 11-hour drive through the night. And now, there's some new stuff going on over at High Brew. They've switched up their formula a bit and have released new recipes of three of their flavors, swapping out stevia for natural cane sugar. To be honest, I personally don't mind stevia, but a lot of people do, including a bunch of my friends, and maybe you agree with them. If so, then I think you're going to be psyched on the new high brew. I am, and the evidence of this is that there are currently about eight empty cans of high brew in my car. It's really probably time for me to clean out my car. 
Uh, anyway, the new hybrid flavors are still under 100 calories per eight ounce can. So these aren't some high sugar calorie bomb coffee drinks. It's just really good cold brew coffee that has less acidity than the average cup of coffee. So go to highbrewcoffee.com to check out all their flavors and use their store locator to see where you can pick some up. I am here today in the uh, garage slash training center slash office. Is that a proper? Yep, yep, that's about right. <laughs> the garage slash training center slash office of, uh, of Tommy Caldwell um, here in Estes Park. And um, this is, first of all, a very cool spot. Um, I'm, I'm envious of this. Uh, but um, there's a number of reasons why I've wanted to talk with Tommy, but the, the occasion today is um, uh, he came out with, uh, the book came out in May, right? Mid-May? Yeah, May 16th May was 16th the publication date. Yep. Of the push. Mm-hmm. And um, this is a remarkable book. And as I sort of have already admitted to Tommy, it's the kind of book that's so good, you're a little bit like, damn it. Like, <laughs> like you're supposed to be really good at climbing, not also really good about writing. So I've, I've, there's been a weird kind of... Um, Envy in the best way, I would say, uh, about about what you've done here, and so, um, so yeah, um, I'm I'm sitting here with a with a really really accomplished climber, um, but I kind of want to talk about writing and authorship uh, to uh, to get us started. Um, so I guess the first question I had was, do you sort of now like self-identify as a writer? Or as an author? Oh, that's a funny question. Like, that word author has been thrown out a few times, and I'm like, I kind of like that, but it feels a little awkward, you know? <laughs> like, I, de- I think definitely I still self-identify as a climber the most, but I really admire writing. I want to be a good writer. Um, you know, I would say that, like, my, my mentors and sort of heroes in the climbing world, I admire. In the writing world, I kind of idolize. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm at that stage of it right now, I guess. They're a little bit outside of what I know, and so I'm like, wow, that's so amazing. When I read good writing, I'm so, you know, incredibly impressed by it because I found it very, very hard. Yeah, that's that means I think, I mean, I, I've anybody who knows me, I, I just always say, like, writing is suffering. Like, I don't I don't know how to do the, the casual, you know, like, knock it all out, Um so maybe more talented or smarter people, you know, writing is just fun. But but I think for me, if it's going to be good, it 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 gets a little intense, and and there is suffering finding the right words and trying to get deeper and deeper into um, what exactly you're what exactly you're trying to talk about or analyze. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think before writing this book, I thought it would be it would get easier as you learn more. But when I sat down to first start writing this, I went and got some advice from some good authors in my community, which were um, Jim Collins and John Krakauer. And it was funny, like they were very encouraging. They're like, you should definitely write this book. You've got a great story. This is a journey you, you should take. And then they started lamenting about the writing process. And like, <laughs> I remember Jim Collins telling me that in, when he wrote his first book, when he was finishing it up, he, he lost like 20 pounds and got boils on his lips from the stress. And then Krakauer was like, it's just like ditch digging. You got to get in the ditch and dig three feet every day, no matter what. And they just made it sound so hard. And these guys are the masters. You know, yeah. these are the guys that when you read it, it it seems so easy. It seems like effortless. it flows so well. Yeah. But that only happens because um, they work so incredibly hard at it. Yeah. And so, yeah, I tried to take that approach. Yeah, 
I think, by the way, this is just, this has become something that is, I don't know, every year it feels like I become increasingly aware of this. So often the things that we look at from the outside, whether it's good writing or good climbing or whatever, we have this thing we do where we tend to downplay the agony of it, you know, like the, the actual getting in the, in the, the dirt and digging. And you're just like, oh man, that's amazing. You're amazing. Like, I wish I could just do that. It's like, dude, you have no idea. You know, like the amount of work that goes in every single day. And like, I don't know, the, for lack of a better word, like the suffering. Um, whether, it's a, whether it's a hard climb, whether it's a really effortlessly looking uh, book or effortless, a book that looks like it was written effortlessly. Like, no, that's, that's years of getting in it and doing the work, right? Yeah. I mean, I think probably the, the main thing that has made it so that I've done anything cool in climbing or riding or anything is the fact that I was actually quite terrible at everything growing up. So I learned that the only way to get things done was to, was to like double down and grit it out and suffer through it. And that's like my one skill in this world, you know, like I actually wasn't a very talented climber naturally and right, you know, I was like a horrible student in school. And, uh, you know, I think if I were, if, if my eighth grade English teacher learned that I wrote a book, they would like drop over dead. you know, they would never, they never could imagine that that would happen. Yeah. Um, but I did, you know, learn to kind of focus on things and work really hard. And so, so, I mean, and in fact, there's one point in the book where it's, it's, it's in the beginning, but it's not, it's, it's far enough into the book where I'm already thinking like, dear Lord, like this, this is really well done so far. And you say, you're like, yeah, I always considered myself a meathead. And I was like, come on, like, this is not, so what happened? I mean, is that, is that really true that you were like, I mean, I know you talked about some of the early struggles in school, Mm -hmm. but you didn't one day just decide like, I'm going to try hard to think about the world in a, in a smart way. I mean, you're, you're what, 38, 38 years old now? Yeah. I mean, is this just something that by virtue of, I mean, you kind of grew up and you, you, you had to say a thoughtful disposition that you just kept sort of paying attention. I mean, this didn't happen overnight. You know, I think people that are close to me that read this book, they're shocked at how introspective it is and how deep it goes, because I don't think most people generally think of me as being that way in life. (laughs) Um, So I don't know where that came from. I think... I think I have, you know, all the, all the introspection in this book was, it's sort of underlying in my life generally, but when I sit down and I meditate on, on it hard, which is why I like writing in the first place, it forces me to do that. Um, it comes out in this way that I really enjoy and I like figuring it stuff out. I like learning about, um, about what I'm doing or myself or other people. And I think it's that curiosity that brings it out more than anything. It is writing is problem solving in a, in a, I think a very real way, right? I mean, like, I don't know what, you know, what was that moment in time? You know, what was happening in that relationship? What was that dynamic about? Why did I say that? I mean, that, you know, um, that, that's, that's an, you got to have an analytical bent or component to be able to go dig in and find those answers, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting. When I sat down to write this book, I just finished the Don Wall, right? You would have thought maybe I would write about that first, but I didn't. I wrote about Kyrgyzstan, which was this incredibly traumatic event in my life because I felt like my success in climbing really came back to this moment in Kyrgyzstan in a lot of ways. I felt like it was deeply connected, but I didn't fully understand why that was. 
And I think that's why I wrote that part first, because I was like, I want to understand the connection more. I want to understand what built me into the person that could do, you know, like succeed when when uh, my genetics didn't necessarily play into it. You know, like I, you know, I was never like I said, I wasn't that good at things. But, um, you know, the hard things in life, you know, I wanted to figure out how that connection made it all work. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Couple of questions there. First sort of tangent, just to keep you honest, you were climbing at a high level when you were young. So we can't let you quite get away with the like demure, (laughs) self-deprecating climber. I mean, when you say you weren't good at things, I mean, that's, that part's not actually true, right? Well, I mean, so you can think of it this way. I was climbing as a kid before anybody else was climbing as a kid. So it seemed like I was good at it, but that's just because I started when, when I was three, nobody else did that back then. Um, then when other kids my age started to climb, um, and started to train kind of in the ways that I did, I pretty quickly got passed up. Um, so I wasn't terrible at it, that's for sure. But compared to the, the real outliers, like, you know, at that, that age, it was like Chris Sharma, um, Dave Graham, like what I would have watched these guys climb, I'd be like, man, they just don't, they don't really train that much. They go out there. They're so... Uh, this just seems so naturally talented. It just all seems to come come together and then for them in this way that it doesn't for me. And so that's probably where I built that belief. Like I'm, I didn't feel like I was good compared to them. But I guess if you, if you're looking at the whole spectrum of it, um, you know, I was good. And I always came very like the the gritting it out, the kind of suffer fest style. That always came really naturally to me. So so first of all, you had not after. The events in Kyrgyzstan written about that then right yeah you I didn't not... write about it at all so then. so and that's the question about this book the push this isn't a book that was written from a kind of a compilation of a bunch of notes that have been that you have written over a number of years you you sat down and wrote the push kind of at at once I mean, over the course of it, a year or so. Yeah, I mean, so those early, so I hadn't done any writing before Kyrgyzstan, really. But in my late twenties, climbing rock and ice and alpinist always would come to me and have me write articles about my expeditions, and so I did pull notes from those articles. Okay. So yeah. those things after Kyrgyzstan, some of them were, um, you know, I, I used I used some previous writing, but anything before that was sitting down and they're drastically reworked. There's not like chapters that I pulled yeah. straight from anything else. Um. So the question that I had, and I mean, <clears throat> this is probably a really stupid question and, and, and maybe insulting or even upsetting. <laughs> so brace <laughs> yourself. <laughs> but I have to say that it felt... This might be a real bad reflection on me personally, right? But like, <laughs> I, I have to say that I was a bit surprised by just how upsetting the events in Kyrgyzstan were, hmm. right? So there, there is a moment where, I mean, again, we, um, you and your climbing crew have been taken captive. You are literally under, you're taken captive, you're under armed guard, and there is a moment when to try to escape from this, you, um, well, there is a push, right? Um, which uh, probably a double entendre on the title, but you know, there you go. Yeah. And this, um, this is really portrayed in the book as the aftermath of this event. Psychologically, this is a, this is a grenade. 
right? I mean, this this event seems to have been um, really difficult to process, created difficulties um, in relationships that you have. I mean, this is a serious thing. And I, again, maybe I'm really callous, but I, I, I was very much in line of, in the line of, this is what you had to do. I mean, you didn't ask to be taken captive. You didn't ask to be held by an armed guard, right? Um, so is there anything more than you can, than you've already said in the book about why that seemed to have been more of a traumatic event? You were just securing your, your freedom. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm trying to remember how, how deep I went. Um, yeah, so... Th- and, but, and let me interject then. By the way, you talk about that there was some, a bit of brushback or, or uh, some whispers of disapprovement within the climbing community right. about the, act, the action that you took. And that just thought, that seemed completely out of line to me. Yeah. I mean, there's so much that can be said about this, honestly. Um, I'll, go, I'll, I'll just uh, talk for a little bit about it. Um, yeah, so I think f- when people hear that basically I, got, I came to the point where I decided that I had to essentially kill somebody to save our own lives, they're like, oh, that's this very heroic thing. But being there in Kyrgyzstan in that moment, this person that I pushed over the cliff, he didn't seem like this evil villain to me. He seemed like this victim of circumstance. Um, if I grew up in the poppy fields of Afghanistan, I might have been in, his very, in the exact same spot. So I was always kind of a meek soul, right? Like I couldn't even, <laughs> you know, like kill a mouse really. Like I would, you know, I, I, I never wanted to kill anything. And so this whole six-day period of being hostages, um, there was two members of our expedition, Jason Singer and John Dickey, who were very much in the mindset that we had to overtake our captors and that was our only way out. Me and my girlfriend, Beth Rotten, at the time, were on the other side of it completely. We didn't think that this should be done. We thought we should just wait it out. We had seen people murdered right in front of us. Um, it seemed very evil. And um, and I had to change my mind on that, you know, like I had to come to this place. I waited till the last possible moment <laughs> to take action. And so um, afterwards, I went through this period of time of, I guess, a deep, introspect- deep introspection, wondering if that was an evil action. Like basically, I, had, I was so convinced that that shouldn't happen until it became absolutely obvious that that was our only way to live. And then I did it. So it was... It, it messed me up. It traumatized me in a lot of ways, but it also showed me that um, I had this capacity that once the decision's made, that I could act, you know, in this way that I had never had to in my life. And so that was empowering um, in the long run. Um, yeah, and then, the, and, then, and then the cycle sort of repeated itself again afterwards with the media craziness that went down. Um, there was one gentleman in particular who who was a very serious alpine climber. You know, there's a huge um, culture of skepticism in that world when people do big climbs and there's no camera there to document it. There's always somebody that kind of throws their hand up and is like, I don't think this actually happened. And that happened in Kyrgyzstan. There was this guy that essentially said that uh, we must have made up the whole thing to get famous. And so that was kind of traumatizing. Again, we're like, not only did we spend six days as hostages, we're pretty young at this point. Um, We were sort of villainized in ways for even going into the mountains in the first place. 
um, because there were warnings on the, there was a warning on the State Department website about about going there and then people ended up dying and so we're you know I was very conflicted about that like as idealistic young Americans should we have even gone and you know it us being there in the first place did it get people killed and that's that's all valid you know that's all things that I still grapple with a bit today um, but the fact that we had just made up the story that was something no. that just infuriated yeah. me you know I was like how could this be and that the whole conspiracy theory um, was a big deal in the climbing world for a while because this guy was very very adamant about contacting every media source and trying to portray his point he wanted to write a book himself um, he went to Kyrgyzstan he spent like you know his life savings to try and prove yeah. that our story was wrong and then it got solved by Dateline NBC essentially Dateline went there and it all had come down to this idea of like did this guy actually get pushed off a cliff um, and Dateline just went to went to Kyrgyzstan that guy ended up living they got him on camera in jail in Kyrgyzstan and they just asked him point blank like yeah. did you get pushed off a cliff and he said yeah and so I pretty much haven't heard from the conspiracy theorists since then yeah. I mean, and that's just like insane and stupid, but I, I just think the, you, it, it's also touched on in the book that there were some people who thought that was, I mean, I think a lot of it, you're, to be clear, it is you asking, did I do an evil thing? Mm-hmm. But man, the thought that someone who wasn't in the circumstance would come in at you to be like, what you did was wrong. I, 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 I couldn't get there and thought that's a, that's an incredible, um, accusation to be throwing at someone from a very comfortable position of having the luxury of not also having been uh, held captive yeah um, yeah there's a lot of skepticism in the climbing community back then and it's it's interesting i had a gentleman just the other day approach me who, who was skeptical at the time and publicly skeptical in a way and he just like apologized profusely after reading the in-depth review of my book he was like oh my god i can't believe that i actually was like portraying that on you at the time because you know, that was such a serious situation. I can't imagine it. And I don't think people necessarily could grasp that who weren't there. You've also been on a, a bit of a book tour or doing some book readings or, or uh, book events. Um, I'm curious, when you do these, what are people um, asking you about the most or what do they want to talk about the most? I guess the the reason for asking, like it's, you know, you write a book, it's out in the world, you don't any longer control the, re- the reception of that book. And to me, I guess what I'm curious about is, like, yes, this is a book about climbing, and I just keep coming back and I'm sort of saying to, you know, friends and, and writing about the fact that, like, this is not a book about climbing, you know? And I think, and I'm, I'm actually, I will be, posting my own written review of this book um, because it's been a book that just got me writing. Mm-hmm. And um, and I would stand by that. And, and in the written review, I mean, that's basically the, the case I'm going to make. Like, I think for, there might be a number of people, right, who are like, I don't know, I don't really climb. So yeah, it's probably not a book I'd read. And like, that's a mistake. I mean, I, and I really mean that. Like, I think, and so I, I guess I'm curious if when you're in these public events, are people focusing in on the kind of climbing achievements or are they wanting to talk more about the sort of psychology of, you know, whether it be uh, some of the dynamics with your dad or the dynamics with your early relationship with Beth or so on and so forth? Or is it kind of a 50-50 mix? It's probably a 50-50 mix and that's partially because half the people at these events 
um, haven't read the book and or you know the people ask the questions probably half of them haven't read the book and half of them have so the ones that have read the book they want to dig in more to the relationship with my dad or the psychology yeah the psychological elements of what this all meant and um, you know really I think people want to understand this idea of sort of overcoming adversity and how that happened because this is a common thread in the book like I was you know I think that's my story in its essence being able to take these hard situations and use them as fuel and people everybody had everybody kind of aspires to do that in a way so I get a lot of questions about that kind of thing yeah to me an enormous element of the book is um I think it's a book about the nature of relationships Mm-hmm. Yeah, cli- I mean, climbing is—it's a great venue for life. You know, I've always—I love climbing, but I talk less about the act of it and more about the relationship aspect, the travel aspect, the personal growth aspect. I mean, climbing is such a great way to live the other elements of life in this very depth and deep and impactful way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's probably why the book came out that way. Um, you know, I'm not talking about climbing moves <laughs> very much yeah, at all not very much. <laughs> yeah um but even that i feel like is a really good mix i mean some of the maybe that gets heavier into some of the technique and stuff when we are talking about the dawn wall yeah um and that seems about right but um but it's it's cool to hear you like say that because i think like there's also you know in addition to being like so it's a book about climbing and it's a book about the nature of relationships and it's a book about overcoming adversity and it's really good nature writing and travel writing. And and I think that's where I was just like, my God, like there's a lot happening here um, in quote unquote, just a book about climbing, right? Like there's a lot happening here in really different genres. And I think it's all being done at a really good level. And I don't think that's easy. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not easy. And I think I can credit that to the fact that I've had some great mentors in my life. Not, I mean, even in my writing past, like, Climbing is this interesting venue into or like portal into writing and in that most of the climbing magazines in the past, which that's where the majority of people get their, their climbing writing started. You know, climbers aren't necessarily writers, but they have great stories to tell. So the, the magazines have had to become very good at helping pull impactful writing out of non-writers. And so I had that experience over and over again with people like Katie Ives and Matt Samet and, you know, Andrew Bicharet. I worked on these articles and they, they taught me how to do that, essentially. And so I learned a lot of the nature writing, um, you know, how to make things visual. That came from Katie Ives. How to, how to go deep emotionally. That came from Kelly Cordes. That was like, you know, he was... So I had one person that I worked with very collaboratively on this book. I sat down and I would write, I would get behind my computer for like 30 to 40 hours a week for a year. I've worked incredibly hard on this. But on top of that, then I would send chapters and sections of the book to Kelly and he would dig in there and he would encourage me to go deeper. And then of course, I'm mechanically a tor- terrible writer, so he would help with that stuff. But um, it, you know, he became like my personal therapist in a lot of ways. Like I was, I was sorting this stuff out psychologically for the first time while writing this book. And I, and I had to do that with Kelly. Um, and you know, I would say that it, like, he's my best friend now in a lot of ways. And that was crucial. Like that partnership, that sort of brotherhood that we learned through climbing, I was able to apply that to the writing world. And I think, um, that helped elevate it uh, to a level that I definitely couldn't have on my own. So when did you, when did you, sorry, you've known Kelly for how long? 
I mean, Kelly was my next door neighbor um, here in Estes um, when I was like 22. He probably moved next door, but I knew him before that. He was the editor of the American Alpine Journal. And so he lived in this little shack down the street at the Colorado Mountain School. And I remember I... He, he invited me over there one day when I was like 19 or something. I just read a route on El Cap and he wanted to, me to write a report on it for the American Alpine Journal. And I opened this door and like, like waded my th- way through the piles of like PBR cans. <laughs> and and that, that was my first impression of him. He's like, he's one of the most brilliant people I know. Um, he lives this very vagabond lifestyle. And it's this, uh, uh, I mean, I'm just so endeared to the guy, you know, he's this great mixture. Yeah. So, um, to get into some of the particulars that this book brings up, and again, I think this is why uh, I really want to make the claim that this is a book that needs to be read by people that I don't care if you've climbed or not, but like, there is so much attention and a kind of coming at the question of, and then returning to the question of things like self-identity and self-worth, and you you've already said it in this, in this conversation, but, and you repeat a number of times in the book that climbing is the only thing I was good at. Mm-hmm. And the question I have is like, that's pretty tough. I mean, since good at, um, seems to mean in that sentence, like among the very best in the world ever. Right. If that's going to be your standard of like, where self-worth comes from, right? Like, I think this is one of the interesting things about someone who has had a lot of success and is accomplished in a specific area. If that then sets the bar for what I'm good at or not good at in every other walk of life, that seems inherently problematic. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point. And obviously problematic. Yeah. Um, I guess I'm curious, and I mean, you've opened this can of worms, right, in the book, and people can read the book, and and there's a lot of introspection on this topic, but I guess I'm wondering, like, where you are right now in the next decade, in the next decade, um, how this notion of self-identity and self-worth, where that's at, if that has evolved, if that, I mean, it seems to me it obviously has to evolve. Yeah. Um, I mean, great questions. I, I think that I was somebody who felt very awkward in life through the early stages of my life, and then climbing was where everything started to click. Um, probably as a, you know, in my early teens, all of a sudden I was like, that's when I started self-identifying as a climber. I was like, this is where I'm gonna go, and and everything just like seemed magical when I was climbing, and so um, I became very very passionate about working hard at climbing, and I built this capacity to like focus on things because I did this over and over again in my life like that's what we do as climbers we find a goal we obsess over them and then we fail over and over again and then maybe someday we eventually succeed Mm -hmm. and um, I think I learned because of climbing that I could apply that elsewhere in life and that's basically what I did in writing I approached it the exact same way um, and now I feel like, and I wouldn't have known this as a 12 year old. Now I feel like I could apply that to most things really. Um, and that's a pretty empowering thought. Like if you work hard enough, mm. you're going to make it happen. And, and, and writing this book was a little bit of a t- test subject for that. <laughs> you know, um, I, I enjoyed writing. I aspired to be a better writer. I didn't know if I'd really be able to do it in a book form. Um, so I just, 
um, yeah, I, just, I guess I just approached it like I do my climbing. Yeah. Um, so it really, I mean, that has been the next project, right? You, you get off the Dawn wall and then it's like, well, the new project in the book really, I mean, one, I think this is kind of seems like just how your life actually did actually unfold, but the book is very much set up in this way, right? Like going from kind of project to, to project, whether it's something on El Cap or whether it's heading down to Patagonia, right? And so it's like, okay, sent the Dawn wall. Now, next project, write a book and figure out how to do that. Yeah, and that's a very, that's a pretty big um, change from what I've done my whole life. I mean, climbing. Um, but I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm sort of an elderly climber, you know, from a professional climber standpoint. I, I realize that I'm not going to be able to go out there and, and push it physically as hard as I have in the past forever. And I, as a dad, I'm maybe not willing to push it in the risk realm. Like, sort of going into bigger, bigger mountains and doing riskier and riskier things is almost the easy way out as a climber because you don't need to be physically as strong to do that. Um, so, you know, you can go out and free solo something big or do something dangerous. And from a respect of your peers standpoint, that has even a bigger effect than sending a hard boulder problem or something, even though it takes maybe 10% of the effort, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, so, you know, I realized there were, it's kind of a dead end road if I continued on that path forever. And I needed to figure out how to diversify. Um, yeah, writing the book was really my first attempt to really do that, I yeah. guess. Yeah. You have this line that is remarkable. Um, I think I have the quote right. Um, you said, you wrote, what do you do if your one God-given gift, the thing you seem preordained to do, is something that could kill you? Yeah, I mean, I, I dig into this idea of risk a lot. I think about it all the time as a father. And part of this is, is built from the fact that in the moment, I'm not very good at being cautious. Like I'm, when I'm up on a mountain, things are getting real. I go into like this warrior mentality and, and I come down and I'm like, that was the most amazing thing. Like I, I love my capacity to just act in the moment and that's so empowering, but it's dangerous. It's yeah. usually dangerous and I understand that from afar. So I've, I've learned that I have to be very cautious about what I choose to undertake yeah. um, because in the moment I'm not going to be cautious. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> which kind of, I mean, that has me thinking about, I mean, in the, the Fitz Traverse that you did with Alex, I mean, you, that's sort of how that section ends where you assess the kind of risk levels that you were willing to accept there. And that, I mean, the assessment is I crossed the line. Yeah. Um, and I mean, let's, here's here's a real question i feel like these are some somewhat sensitive questions but like you also you know have talked about like you and alex are currently drawing lines in the sand in different places when it comes to risk and risk acceptance but would this mean that you are i mean you just ran up a wall with alex a couple weeks ago but i guess this would mean, given everything you're saying, you would have to do some real assessment. If Alex were to call you up and say, hey, there's this other thing I want to do with you, you'd have to be careful there, right? I mean, if you're going to stay true to your, like, I am going to exercise more caution and more analysis about what level of risk I'm willing to take. Yeah. You guys are in different places. Yeah, it's funny. I feel like we're in similar places emotionally, but uh, 
analytically we're in very different places um like alex calls me and wants to do some big climb and my immediate reaction is like yeah let's do this i want to do that so bad and then i look at my kids and i'm like okay wait is this a good idea should i actually do this um and i think there is i mean it's like everything in life is about finding the right balance right so you know if alex wanted to go do some huge alpine route where we're going to be climbing under big Cirax the whole time. I would, you know, I would look at that and I'd be like, definitely not. I can't do that, man. I'm sorry. Um, but climbing El Cap, you know, I feel like I've learned that, that that is an environment that seems exciting and dangerous in a lot of ways, but there are ways to make it safe. Um, you know, there's not ledges to hit. I'm pretty used to being in midair, so I'm willing to take like 60 foot whippers, you know, mm-hmm. and I know I'm willing to get hurt, but I'm not willing to die. Um, and emotionally when I'm up there, i I have a pretty level head, so it makes me bold. Um, and so it actually, it does work when we get together. I mean, when I climb with Alex, a lot of times, like I basically have drawn this line. I'm like, I'm not going to free solo, but with them, when I'm climbing with Alex, we're simul climbing through 512 with like two pieces in between us and risking huge falls all the time. And I'm willing to do that. Um, and I've, I guess I have justified that in my head and that yeah i might get hurt but i'm not gonna i'm not gonna die um yeah that's how (laughs) you had this um another really interesting passage in the book um you write um about alex um alex saw me as one of the few people with the mental coolness experience and climbing ability to make big wall free soloing reasonably safe. To Alex, the fact that I didn't go for it was like owning a really nice sports car, but only driving the speed limit. Um, so if you, I mean, here's the question I want to ask. Do you have the self-belief that you could free solo free rider, i.e. the same self-belief the same belief in you that Alex seems to have? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, there's definitely been times in my life where I've, where I've thought to myself, like, I feel so solid that I feel like I could free solo the free rider. Like I've climbed the free rider before and been like, that's, you know, I feel really good. I feel like I could, I could free solo it. But my dad from a very young age, um, you know, helped me to understand that that's a pretty selfish way to think about things, especially I've, I've got a strong family life, you know, I've got, I've got kids. And so for me, free soloing, the thing that keeps me from doing that is more, uh, well, it's a couple things. It's, it's the fact that it's pretty self-serving in a lot of ways. Um, but it's also the fact that I've, I've lived long enough now to see things go wrong a lot. Like I bet I've had 20, 20 friends die in the mountains. Um, and I, I want that margin of safety to be, to be bigger than that. You still haven't asked, answered the question yet, which I'm going to hold you on because you're giving this roundabout thing. Oh, you can come in. Oh, yeah, please. Like... Hello? Oh, maybe that's just the wind doing that. I thought it was maybe Fitz. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, what's the question? You haven't said, like, yeah, I could do it. You oh. just explained why you won't, and that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, honestly. I don't know. If... Hey, Fitz, you can come in, buddy. Come in. <laughs> come in here. <laughs> hey, do you want to show, show us how you can climb really fast? 
Let's see, man. With the hook. <laughs> <laughs> Don't climb with the hook. You might break it. <laughs> okay, let's see it. One, two, three, go. Oh, that's not very fast. <laughs> nice. Doing good. Just decided to be calculated at this point. Well done. Oh, yeah, nice. Oh, you're doing it actually extra slow now because I told you to do it fast. <laughs> wow. That's, that works. Very that works deliberate. Too. I think I'm going to have to set a harder roof for you, huh? I don't know. I don't even remember where we left off. Yeah, so I think I, I'd asked you the question basically. Alex seems to say, dude, you could do this. Like you could, you could go, um, free solo, free rider. So I asked you, do you have sort of that belief that Alex has? Do you have that self belief? And you started talking about all the reasons why you aren't going to do that, <laughs> which is a different, which is a legitimate thing. It's a way to go, but it's not. It doesn't actually answer the the question. Yeah, I mean, like if you look at it logically, like I've climbed the free rider tons of times you know, carrying up a rack of gear and, um, and a big rope and I haven't fallen, you know, like I've, I've done it plenty without falling. I've gotten to the point where it feels pretty easy. Um, so theoretically, if I went and I rehearsed it, climbed it a dozen times, got everything perfect. Yeah. I could probably go free solo. Like physically, that's something that I could do. The mental leap is something I'm honestly not sure about. Like being 3000 feet up a wall without a rope on, I just haven't experienced that, that I don't know if I'd freak out or not. Um, I know when I was climbing it with Alex a few weeks ago and I was up, uh, you know, I haven't been climbing on El Cap for a couple of years and I went there and I was just, I felt like I was just flapping in the breeze and the rope behind Alex as he was like pulling me up the thing. And I was thinking to myself, like being up here right now without a rope, the way I'm feeling that feels, um, like I just couldn't really imagine it. Um, but there has, there has been times in my life, um, where I've, where I've contemplated it and I felt like I was probably capable of doing it. Um, but you never really know until, until you, until you allow yourself to go down that road, which I've never done. Yep. It was interesting. So, uh, this conversation I recorded with our climbing editor, Dave Alley, he, you know, we're going back and forth on this. And I think it's what you do with that climb is sometimes you're just like this, I, I, my head can't process, my brain can't process that. And then you can kind of you can get to the right place where you're like, yeah, maybe that's not that big a deal. And, you know, he's calculated the risks and it's, you know, but, and Dave was trying to use an example about, look, it's kind of like driving a car. And I think Alex has actually used this example too. It's like, look, you know, you drive a car every day and you're real comfortable with that level of risk. And my only counter to that was you who had just been on the route with him and your you talk about that, like when I was running up Freerider with Alex and you were thinking about what he was about to go do in that attempt, you were like, I couldn't fathom it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at home, when you're sitting about it, like sometimes I've been able to fathom it, but up there on the wall, it's a little bit different. Yeah. And Alex, I think, is really a true outlier in that way. He's able to think about it in the moment the same way he does, you know, at home beforehand. Yeah. Um, he doesn't He doesn't get emotionally affected by it the way that pretty much everybody else does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if I, if I, you know, I, I don't, I, I know when, when I'm up on mountains and things get real, it, it, it creates flow. 
And I would like to believe that the same thing would happen <laughs> if I was free soloing. Like if somebody held a gun to my head and said that I have to climb the free rider, I hope I would go into that state. I think I probably would, but I don't know for sure. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's weird. Hanging out with Honold, it's interesting because he, he is not very introspective. You know, he, is not, he doesn't go deep. He thinks about things on this very surface level. And he kind of has to, you know, in a way. <laughs> yeah. And it's really useful to be that way for him. Um, I'm like the other side of it somewhat, but although generally in life, like when I'm out, when I'm out, when I'm high on a mountain and things are getting real, I'm not the person that is like, Oh, you know, I'm not starting to think very, I actually think very surface level about things. I think very analytically about things when a big rock falls off the summit and like lands next to me, I'm like, okay, well, you know, the conditions are doing this and I think we're going to be okay. I just always go to this point of extreme positivity and which makes me go home. It's, but but then when I get off the mountain afterwards, that's when I get really introspective. Yeah. Um, Honold, I don't think, is ever <laughs> ever that introspective. He's just like, yeah, if he gets if it gets too heavy for him, it would it would like mess him up mentally. I think. Yeah, it's so it's so funny in your book. Like I was so I have like a hard copy of the book, and then was it was uh, been listening to the audio book. The audio book is excellent, by the way. Oh, I wish I could have read that. I'm a horrible. Uh, horrible at reading aloud um, but I tried to listen to that a little bit since it's my words but not my voice it's it weird me out I was just like I listened like 10 minutes I'm like no I can't do this anymore it's just so funny though that you know as I'm driving listening to this every time you mention Alex it's yeah. like the goof pops up like on the set of a TV sitcom you know and uh, you know so I think everything you've just said kind of checks out and and just listening again to the we're gonna put uh we're going to put Fitz in the backpack. Yeah. <laughs> and just like laughing out loud. Yeah. People are looking over me in the next car like, what, is, what are you doing? But, uh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, he does provide the comic relief, kind of. <laughs> He's good at that. Another question. Um, Alex made this comment that he thinks soloing Freerider will be, become more commonplace over the next 20 or 50 or 100 years. And that it will become sort of less of a big deal. I, what do you think? You, I think he's probably right, honestly. You like, do. I think a pretty good, comp, you know, a pretty good route to look at is the uh, is Astroman, right? When Peter Croft did that, climbing wasn't as mainstream of a sport back then. But when Peter Croft free soloed Astroman, it was just as big of a deal, probably to the you know in terms of. Uh, being a, an imaginative leap into that world as Alex free soloing El Cap was. Um, and now people free solo um, Astro Man relatively commonly. I mean, it's not, it's not that common. It probably happens once every couple of years, but it does happen once every couple of years. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't be surprised if that becomes the case on the free rider. I mean, I think whenever, whenever we've put limits on climbing, whenever we've said this is impossible or this is never going to get done, it always gets proved wrong. Um, so I've learned you just don't put limits on that, you know, uh, who knows, who knows where the, where the end is. Um, I feel like I shouldn't ask you this question, but I want to, and I can't think of the most diplomatic way to ask it so that you'll actually answer it. But <laughs> so who, who do you think would be, what climber will, would be the first person to successfully repeat a solo of Freerider? I don't see anybody out there right now. I mean, I think Alex was really unique in that he, 
he thinks about like he manages risk in this unbelievable way that is very life empowering um i think i wouldn't be surprised if somebody comes along and free solos the free rider next year after having just broken up with their girlfriend or something like more like a suicidal mission um i think that could that's very likely to happen you know some point not too distant in the future i think it's unlikely i don't see anybody on the horizon who could approach it the way alex did and be so calculated and so solid and make it you know quote reasonably safe he's the only person in that same universe that i know of right now yeah um last question about free rider but when you guys were on the wall was he expressing any particular like what was he most concerned about Alex was very much in this mindset of just like working it out. Um, he was very excited about the whole thing. You know, he, he made light work of it. And um, I mean, that's his talent in, in life above all else is he, he just, he, he's able to take these things that seem so crazy to everybody else and think of them as like not a big deal. And that's exactly what he was doing. He was being very calculated. He would talk about this move, be like, oh man, that move on pitch seven, there's that one slippery foothold. Like we should probably go back and I should figure out if I can make that feel more solid or figure out a way around it. Um, he was just kind of checking all the boxes and getting super fit. And he's been so driven. I mean, he's climbed more than anybody in the last decade um, for sure. And I think that was all in this attempt to just become so comfortable on rock that he can make this the subjective reasonable one question that i wanted to ask um, because it comes up in the book on a couple of different occasions you you talk a bit in the book about faith mm-hmm. and your faith and um i think rightly also say that that's not something that gets talked a lot about in sort of the climbing community and i found myself thinking a bit about you've got Alex, who has, um, who has, you know, kind of gone on record and written about this topic and um, with, I don't know if we would call it, um, you know, if he would describe this as agnosticism or... He calls himself an atheist. He does. He is going further. I mean, there's been times when he's sort of used both terms. Yeah, I think he's, at one point he was definitely like, I'm an atheist. He might have changed that slightly now. Yeah, I don't know. But I was going to say, like, I wonder if this leads to some interesting conversations when you guys are, you know, 2,000 feet in the air. But then I thought, well, you guys are moving so fast. <laughs> I mean, Alex is super fun to talk to about all this stuff. And he does like to talk about religion a little bit. Yeah. And he, he, he more talks about it in terms of, like, you know, Becca, you know, is a is is a Christian. You know, I don't know if I'd say a born-again Christian. But there was a time in her life when she you know, went from not really knowing to deciding to choose this Christian path. And he, he doesn't understand that at all, but he admires, as everybody does, admires Becca's, Becca tremendously. Um, and so it's funny, my community of climbers who are usually pretty anti-Christianity mm-hmm. uh, because of Becca, they all kind of look at it a little differently now. They're like, wow, here's this woman that is like so loving and so accepting and so caring in all these ways. And she attributes it, tributes that to her faith and I'm kind of the same way like she's inspired me in a lot of ways and I admire her for that um and I think Alex does too in a way um people that struggle in life generally want you know they need something to grasp onto I think faith is one of those things um that works it's very effectively that's now that's a long ways from belief (laughs) um so I don't know I think I just I, I try not to 
in life or in this book um, come up with any answers. Um, I just I just grapple with it. I thought I think I, I sat down to write this book thinking that I would come up with answers, and really all I did is make is come up with a lot more questions. <laughs> um, but I I built a love for um, just grappling with the ideas, and mm-hmm. you know, faith is one of those. Yeah. Hmm. Um. Let's go from faith to burnout. <laughs> um, I think one of the remarkable things is, um, I mean, you you started climbing, I mean, from, you said, I think, in this conversation, three years old, but I mean, you, you were the son of a climber, and you got started early, and what you talk about in the book how there were, you know, you start kind of on your rise and you're a teenager and we, you know, things are going well and you're starting to set expectations for yourself about, I think I'm pretty good at this. And you talk about some of the plateaus that you hit, but what you never talk about in the book, because I guess presumably it didn't happen was just burning out on this. You know, and thinking, I the last thing I want to do is go to a crag right now. Yeah, is that true? Um, there there was probably some moments of sort of burnout in my teenage years when I had this this benchmark, like I was trying to climb a certain number grid or win a competition, and it was all about reaching that goal, right? And that meant everything to me. Um, I evolved beyond that in a way where I saw these goals as very important in terms of being these focal points, but really the reason that I was out there doing it was just the life that it provided. I loved the pursuit. I love, I have like this growth mindset. I love to progress. I love, I'm super curious. And if, and if I view life on those terms, like the pursuit and the curiosity, there's never burnout because I'm just endlessly curious. I mean, does anybody stop being curious? (laughs) I guess some people do. Um, But uh, I've also been pretty diverse in my climbing. Like I was a boulder and a sport climber and I go from one thing to the next. And so if something starts to feel slightly stale, I move on to another aspect of it. Um, Yeah, I'm always somebody who just gets super excited about things. I don't know which... I guess I, don't burn out. I guess one of the the reasons I ask this is, um, <clears throat> like in my own life. I mean, talk about we're talking about self identity. We've been talking about that, but um, like growing up as a kid, football, basketball, not a third thing. There was not a third thing. Right. And you know, they I ended up having an injury that ended uh, a college football and basketball career. So at that point, like, well. What are, what are you about, you know? And you, I guess, haven't had that where you've had to completely like either you have, you you haven't had to, you haven't had to pivot away from climbing and you haven't chosen to pivot away from climbing. You've, you've explored different, um, components and elements of climbing, but you never, there's no point where you're like, and then I was just like, screw it. I'm never climbing again. And then (laughs) took up, I don't know, archery or the guitar, (laughs) like, And, and that's kind of interesting. I keep, for some reason, I keep thinking about um, tennis players. Like mm-hmm. tennis players often, the best ones, and Andre Agassi, they start really young. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's a pretty common, I think, uh, common happenstance among tennis players that start at a really early age is they just get fried. Like they can't play anymore. Yeah. You know, it's not even, sometimes they just don't want to. 
Another is just mentally they're fried. Yeah. And you seem to have avoided that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think probably that has something to do with the fact that the world, the, the mountains of the world being your, like your, your court is just way cooler than an actual tennis court. <laughs> like, like, it's pretty easy to go out and spy, you know, you see, you see a new mountain ridge and you're like, wow, that's incredible. You go on another tennis court, yeah. maybe on the other side of the world, but it's still the exact same tennis court. That's just less cool in a way. <laughs> okay, that's fair enough. Granted, granite is cooler than concrete, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Yeah, but I do understand the burnout of the pressure. Um, you know, there is. I've seen a lot of climbers that put so much pressure on themselves. Yeah. My ex-wife is one of them. She always puts so much pressure on yeah. herself, and that that left that led itself to burnout at times. Yeah. Um, I never really put that pre- that much pressure on myself. I don't know. I, I, I like really want to. I strive very intensely to push myself, but I'm not devastated by the failures. I think that's actually probably the, the main the main thing that has enabled me to do what I have. I actually embrace the failure. I like kind of enjoy it in a way because I because those are the, I know that those moments are are where I'm growing the most. Um, do you think that if if you and Kevin had not successfully sent the Dawn Wall back at the start of 2015, right? Mm-hmm. Honestly, would you have been back? Probably, yeah. because I gave up on several occasions um, throughout the years. Like that, you know, before I had a kid, before Fitz was born, I, I was that season before that. I was like, I'm never, I'm not going to be able to yeah. focus my life on this once he's born. And so I was like, this was my last season, and that was like the heaviest season in a lot of ways. I did put a lot of pressure on myself, and it was less enjoyable in a lot of ways. Um, but whenever I'd give up, it would get under my skin and I would come back. And so at some point I was just like, well, I'm just going to keep coming back to this thing until I, you know, as long as I'm seeing progress and there's, it's such a big wall. You can always find progress somewhere. Yeah. Of all the, of all the different climbing projects and, and accomplishments, what's the one where you just think, I can't believe I pulled that off. Like, I can't believe I actually did that. I mean, probably the most unexpected was the Fitz Traverse, because that was something that my first trip to Patagonia, um, people were there. Uh, Peter Croft was there to try that objective. People had been thinking about it for so long and trying it, um, and I never, I, I thought, I see, I saw it as kind of a pipe dream thing for a lot of years. But then I started climbing with Alex, and we'd climb these big walls incredibly fast, and uh, and then I was like, maybe, but still, even going to Patagonia, I was like, yeah, that's probably not going to happen. Um, but then it happened and I couldn't believe it when it happened, you know, I was like, whoa, that we actually pulled that off. That's incredible. And uh, now that I know that it's possible though, I could see going, going and doing it again. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was surprising that it worked. But I mean, is, is the just obvious answer though, the Dawn wall, given that it took seven years of work and it just, it felt impossible. And there were sections where you talk about, I mean, this, it, this doesn't go. I mean, it's, yeah. or do you think you always kept that kernel of like, I can... it was always so easy to see room for improvement yeah. on the Don wall. And so that kept me going back. Um, you know, no matter what would happen, I'd be like, well, I could have trained a little better. I could figure out this issue with my skin better. You know, you know, I could keep this minor thing from happening. Um, if I just could climb more solidly through the bottom, I mean, there's always a zillion ways that we could improve. 
and you know even to the very end there there's tons of room for improvement so i want to ask this question from this is like the media question you know if if it's the case that you know if you're talking to different media outlets if the the if the focus usually goes to the don wall and you know like for good reason right what's the climb where you think i don't i don't think people understand how damn hard that was you know i don't think pe- it like because it's overshadowed by other things or they kind of yeah yeah you did that one thing and you're like dude do you get like you know what i mean <laughs> yeah um I mean, I, I felt like there was a there was probably a ten year period of my life when I was doing Roots on El Cap one after another. That you know, first the sense that nobody else was doing anything of that caliber at that time, and I think those those probably got overshadowed a bit. Like people don't. I think I think in the future, people when those things get repeated, people will be like, "Well, those these these were harder than anybody really understood at the time." Um, yeah, that was like the that was like the time in my life where I was like, I found the thing in the world, the thing that I can be the best in the world at, you know. And I was going at it incredibly vigorously, and I was, um, you know, climbing in a way that I'm very proud of now. Um, and I guess that led to the Don Wall. I don't think people really understood that at the time. I guess. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> I made the comment to you apologies in advance kevin but I, i've made the comment to you that reading about uh your your approach to the Donwall and kevin's approach to the Donwall slightly different and i was reading along thinking i want to kill <laughs> kevin <laughs> like show up when you are supposed to show up and uh anyway and we we had a you were very nice and we're saying well uh Kevin was probably viewing these things in a more reasonable and rational way. I was maybe too obsessed. And in the book, you talk about this, your approach to the project and how Kevin was had a pretty different maybe orientation to, to achieving um, that project. And you the quote is, or the line is, um, this desire for balance. Um, and I think that raises a really, really important question of can you accomplish, frankly, you know, world historical achievements with balance or, or do these things, whether, whatever walk, you know, whether it's the writing of a book, whether it's a particular climb, I mean, how many great things get done without that obsessive element yeah, that's a great question. I think the ability to to view it from a bigger, like from like zoom way back and be like, okay, maybe it's worth having this time in my life that is very very unbalanced because it's going to create something that I want in the larger picture, which does create better balance. So there was seasons on the Don Wall. Like the, my first several seasons working on the Don Wall, I focused only on the Don Wall. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I, I, I pushed out everything in my life, basically. And I was like, this is all I can think about. And then towards the end, I was like, this is too much. Like, I'm tired all the time. I'm training too much. I'm ignoring my wife. <laughs> you know, uh, this, it, it's, it's overdoing it. And so I honestly probably took a bit more of Kevin's approach in the last seasons where I was like, okay, I'm just, I'm only going to, I'm only going to obsess on El Cap for three months a year. 
and then the rest of the year I'm going to train and stuff, but I'm going to try and achieve more balance. And that that did work better. But for those three months on LCAP, I would, I was all in. You know, I was 100% all in. And the difference with Kevin is he wasn't all in during those three months. He'd want to go home. He'd want to do things yeah. with his family. He would. He took a whole season off at one point because his family had a permit to raft down the Grand Canyon. You know. And, and I couldn't fathom that. I was like, how can you, like, this, what we're doing is so cool and we have to go for it with everything we have. Um, but this has been like a recurring tension in my life. I've, I noticed that I obsess so hard on things that it's like hard on relationships. And so I've become better at being understanding about that mm-hmm. <laughs> in the later parts of my life. I think that's, I think though, what you've just said there is probably kind of the key because the great stuff is not going to happen without the obsessive, without the obsession. But if you can try to what rain that, that season, the obsessive season in, right. And like for now, this will be the focus point. Yeah. And I guess try to put, um, parameters on that season Mm -hmm. and then go back to trying to achieve that lovely sounding balance. Right. <laughs> um, I don't know. But I mean, I, I think it's a... Crit- and I mean, honestly, like it's... Um, look, you've, you're have you a really, really good person to talk about. You've got a lot of perspective, I think, on this exact topic. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people out in the world who are like, you know, man, I, I, you know, I, I want to write that novel or I want to be this singer or I want to be this basketball player. And it's like, well, then go work your ass off, you know, beyond push yourself beyond what you thought even harder than you thought you could push yourself and i think you have demonstrated your ability to do that but on the other hand like it's nice to just chill you know and it's and and so i think like i don't know i I guess the really inarticulate question i'm trying to ask is how do we do that on the one hand the very attractive have a life like a balanced life where we're good to all our relationships and making time for everyone that and then also have these obsessive moments where we can go put the kind of work and focus that's required to do something great do you know what i mean yeah i think it's always going to be a struggle like all the people in my world that you know are quote successful work like 80 to 90 hours a week they ignore their children you know their relationships with their wives are on the rocks a lot of the time because they work so darn much and um i'm like that too at times um so i think that ability to zoom out and and try and like view it from a larger perspective i think my wife is very understanding in that she will sacrifice hugely to help me get these things done for those seasons and then i sort of have to uh you know, I, I was like this with the book, too, <laughs> with writing this book. I was so obsessed over it for months and months and months. And then when I was finished, I was like, okay, I'm going to go on a trip to Europe, and I'm going to ignore my email. I'm not going to answer phone calls, and I'm going to just have complete family time. And so, in a way, neither of those things were totally balanced. But if you look mm-hmm. at them both, it, it is balanced, you know? <laughs> So the answer is it's an absolute lack of balance all the time. It's all in. It's all in one thing at a time. No, it's, yeah. I, I, I'm twisting your words a little bit, but yeah, no, a little bit. I mean, yeah, yeah, I think you have to have an understanding partner, I guess, or yeah. or no partner at all. I mean, I think that is what happens in climbing a lot, um, or in anybody who is very driven. That just that becomes the reality. Yeah. Um, 
So yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I think that that's how I do it. Sometimes I do have a nice symmetry in life and I'm always able to do it, but then sometimes I'm all in on one thing or all in the other. And it's just the sum that has to equal the balance. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, Jim Collins, he, he, he treats sleep this way, right? He, uh, he's a lot of people are like, Oh, I need to get eight hours of sleep at night. He's just like, I need to get whatever, 60, whatever hours of sleep a week. And so he can, he can borrow in some days and then <laughs> where, where are you at on the sleep? Uh, late, lately, I've, I've always, I've always a little bit deprived, um, especially when writing the book, I woke up at, uh, 40, every day so I could work, um, until like 2 PM and then I could have the family time. And then I found myself just like only sleeping six hours a night and I'd get really grumpy and tired all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, then I went to Europe and I slept like 10 hours a night and then I started to feel like I was good again. <laughs> so this is, this really, this, the title of this is going to be like the absolutely unbalanced life of Tommy Caldwell. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. I got I, up at 4.30 and then I went to Europe and slept 10 hours every day. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, just borrowing from one aspect of the life of, of life to, uh, at times I think is okay. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, like with Kevin, I felt like not doing Christmas with my family to send the Don wall was absolutely worth it. You yeah. know? And I was going to go home and be totally with my family and present after sending the Don wall. Um, you know, he didn't see it that way. Yeah. So it always created a bit of tension. I think the relationship with Kevin is a super fascinating part of this book. Me too. It's, it's very multidimensional. I, I appreciate Kevin tremendously. I could never could have done these things without him. Um, you know, I think of him as a brother, but the kind of brother that you fight with and drives you crazy a lot of times yeah. and you absolutely love on the other hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's, it's really well done. That's yeah, that was a great, I mean, I can't say it better, but <clears throat> it's how it's driving you crazy too. the kind of, you know, social media stuff that is going on. And yet obviously that stuff was a really played a really important role on getting this climb. You know, if you're like mad that Kevin is, you know, still staring at his phone and yet like the coverage that came sort of as a result from some of this was probably net positive in a lot of ways, right? I mean, or well, maybe you don't feel that yeah, way. Well, I mean, <laughs> it's changed my life in in a lot of a lot of great ways. I mean, the net cover, like my life has been hectic ever since the Don Wall, um, because it's it's. I just feel like there's pieces of me that are going in all directions now because everybody wants a little piece here and there. Um, but I think the net of that is like I can support a family through professional rock climbing. Like people haven't been able to do that yeah. in the past, really, and that's an incredibly privileged place to be and i owe a lot of that to kevin's more forward thinking approach to the media side of things you know i was a curmudgeon i was like this should not be part of our world this is about the heart this is not about the career if you bring if you put the career above like the passion that's backwards Mm -hmm. um and so if it was just me up there i probably would have done the dawn wall and nobody would have really even known about it you know (laughs) yeah no and it also i mean i think it puts you um you're in this remarkable position, I think, in kind of modern climbing history, because like you're here, like you're doing it right now, the big stuff, the hard stuff, but you do seem sort of real old school and you were, you know, you were running around and there's Lynn Hill and Warren Harding's at your house, right? Like given slideshow presentations. So I think you are really, whereas like 
we look at younger climbers now and it's like, well, they're just in kind of the new school program, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and so, I don't know, you, you're, um, you're bordering climbing history or bridging climbing history in a pretty interesting way. I mean, does it... Yeah, probably because I've been climbing for 35 <laughs> years, you know? Yeah. <laughs> that's a lot of perspective. That's more than, that's a lot longer than most people have been climbing. But also I have, I, I think I can attribute this to my dad a lot. He was always one of these people that um, embraced the old school and the new school. Like he would go into the mountains and, you know, climb in a swami belt and hexes and, uh, you know, do roots ground up. And then he would go sport climbing. And he appreciated all that. Yeah. You know, like he was one of the early adopters of like wearing spandex and power drilling bolts <laughs> into the crag ground here. And he lost a lot of friends because of it. But he also was accepting of all things climbing. And I think that, um, you know, I, I definitely, I'm probably less that way than my dad is, honestly. <laughs> um, should wrap up here um, in a bit. But um, I, I'd be remiss to not ask you about again we just talked about your your you know old man perspective over here uh the future of climbing and kind of what you're seeing um we just talked about the social media presence is a massive change and i mean really like and in terms of bringing climbing increasingly into the kind of the mainstream the coverage um, the coverage of of alex's climb you know, is nuts. I mean, super different from sort of how things used to be. Um, I think the other thing that I'd be interested to hear you talk about is sort of the specialization of climbing. Um, so some couple of different uh, ways you could take that, but, but what you're looking at and either thinking like, this is cool what I'm seeing or where you're like, I'm not sure I'm down with this. Um, yeah. Um, I think we're at, we're living at a very, very interesting time in climbing because the fact that it's becoming mainstream makes it suddenly, and I think mainstream is really a new thing, like in the last five years, makes it suddenly um, make sense, like financially, I guess, like, re, like from a resource standpoint to focus all of your energy on climbing. Um in a way that has never happened in the past, um, which means like with things like, you know, kids are going to be growing up now aspiring to be an Olympic rock climber. And there's sort of financial backing behind that. That didn't exist before five years ago so much. And so I think what that is going to do is it's, 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 it's like a resource issue that suddenly there's going to be so much more resources and this bigger gene pool. And I think climbing is going to continue to explode in terms of number of people and the standards that are being pushed in a much more accelerated rate than it has in the past. That's kind of my take on it. Um, hmm. The media side of it, that's, that's a different, like I, I'm a little bit heartbroken when, like, I, th- I think one of the most beautiful things about climbing for me is this idea of, of the solitude with another friend or two that happens in the mountains when you're out there. Um, and that is going away, unfortunately. And um, that's something that's hard for me to really grasp. 
Um, like the fact that you can bring sat phones anywhere in the world and constantly talk to people. Like, I think the fact that we do that now, um, there's like, there's something lost there. Um, so maybe there'll be a pushback. Maybe people will understand that at some point and stop bringing their sat phones. I don't know. know. And I, that's something I've wondered about and, and, but I'll just go with, I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah. Because part of the resources, part of the reason resources are being made available, right? It's it's a bit it's a bit tethered. I mean, yeah. furthermore, I also think like, you know, if I'm a 12 year old kid who's getting into climbing and climbing well, you've just grown up in this world, you know, of like this is your this is the fishbowl and this is your water, the world of social media and stuff. So it's it's going to have to feel real Amish. I think if there's going to be that pushback where it's like, yeah, we're rejecting the kind of, we're going to, we're going to sort of um, say no to our sponsors who are interested in, right. I mean, getting some of that content and we're just going to go do this climb. That's going to get, that's going to be real countercultural, I think. And I mean, yeah, Yeah, you're probably right. If, if any, if any of the sports are going to do it, I think maybe, climbing's countercultural roots put it in a good position to be the one to do Mm -hmm. it but i honestly i like i would not hold my breath on that one i think it's going to feel real countercultural and and it every year will feel you know um because i think these the younger climbers this is just what they do it's what they know yeah yeah it's sort of like we used to climb for the soul of it and it's more now we're climbing because of the uh, you, it's it's hard to climb without taking into account how everybody else is perceiving what you're doing. Um, that was a big. That was that's one of the reasons the the relationship with Kevin is so fascinating. Like, um, you know, we were up on the Don Wall working on it for a year, and then suddenly a photographer came on the wall one day, and and Kevin was like lead climbing for the first time, two thousand feet off the crown, and like doing real well you know <laughs> because that was there and it, and it pushed him in this way that uh that i was i was looking at that being like is this cool i mean i guess it's making him climb better <laughs> maybe maybe it's a positive thing and he seems more excited um is that the right motivation you know who am i to judge but i can't help but judge <laughs> right on the other hand um yeah and for me, I would have kind of the opposite effect. The camera would be there, and all of a sudden, I'd be like, "Oh, is this about the soul as much?" Yeah. Maybe that's just a very old school way to look at it, or maybe it's a better way to look at it. I mean, these things are in play, right? Like, yeah. I think we have to be, I think we have to be willing to assess this stuff, right? And um, technology is just more and more pervasive, and there's a whole lot of upside to that. But if we just become junkies and slaves to it, then that's a real problem, right? Yeah. And we know how to talk about someone with a drug addiction, and we know how to talk about you know uh, someone with an alcohol addiction. We aren't there yet in terms of figuring out a, a technology addiction. Yeah, I mean, parents think about this all the time, which I'm a parent with a four year old yeah, right what now. Are you so, doing? Um, <clears throat> I mean, we 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 try and strike the right balance. Like Fitz doesn't get screens except for on airplanes, essentially, you know, huh. until he's older. I don't want him, I mean, I feel like if we didn't let him use devices at all, it would be almost like 
um, not teaching them how to speak or something like that yeah. in the modern world. Yeah. Um, but you got to find the right balance. You don't want it to totally consume their lives. That's definitely, I mean, like Steve Jobs was a big advocate for not right. putting screens in the hands of kids. Um, maybe that will happen in our outdoor world in a way. Like we'll try and figure out the times to use them and the times not to use them and what's appropriate for each. And so that's what I do. Like I El Cap, I'm like, well, there's great cell phone service. It kind of makes sense to do this here. But if I go to Patagonia, I'm, I'm going to really try not to. Or the Himalayas, like I don't want to have a cell phone. I want to have that experience that I remember from when I was younger of not, of being able to be in your little bubble with just you and your friend and, and that moment and keep it as you guys together in that moment. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I, I think one thing that, that, kind of pains me to this day is I never connected with Kevin in this way that I have with most of my other climbing partners in my past, like emotionally. And I think that has a lot to do with the devices, yep, the totally. technology. Yeah, 100%. Like his go-to always when there was a moment of downtime was to get on his phone. You know? <laughs> How do you connect with somebody when that's the case? <clears throat> yep. Well, and I think which then sort of comes back to the question of like, if there's anything, you know, you as a parent, you know, parents in general, we need to think about this better, I think, as a society um, to make sure we haven't just, you know, I don't know, what's the analogy? I mean, put the <laughs> put the booze in the hand of a 10-year-old kid and be like, go use that responsibly. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's not fair, you know, yeah. and, and I mean... I don't know. It's an interesting one. And I think it's, a. It's. I mean, I think you could argue it's one of the singular um, sort of problems and questions to be addressed in kind of modern society outside of, you know, certain political things or, you know, what's happening with the environment. But in terms of just how we function, right, as in terms of producing functioning adults that can navigate the world in a way that's not skewed, where we can still connect. Um, those are big, big, big fundamental things, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's just inevitably going to change um, how we how we interact and how we connect and how we function. We're just going to change our ideas of what that is, mm-hmm. and it could be worse. I'm sure there'll be things that are lost, but there's probably going to be things that are better too. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, um, I got to ask you about what's next, but I want to do it. I mean, what's next was I mean, sent the dawn wall. Holy cow! undertook this book project you kind of aced that congrats (laughs) um and so i don't really you know when how long do you give yourself kind of a like let me can i like not think about the next project right you know it's like somebody wins an nba championship and you're like when are you gonna start going back to practice tomorrow it's like hey hang on let me let me kind of enjoy this right but yeah so whether it's a climbing project, whether it's a kind of new passion or interest that, you know, you're getting interested in that has nothing to do with climbing. Um, and then related, man, I am inarticulate today. It's because this is my first cup of coffee. I'm going to blame that. <laughs> you just you just got back from training. You said you were training this morning before we met up. You seem to be somebody who trains rather specifically for whatever the next project is. So what is the, what are you training like right now? Uh, you know, I, in the past, that's true. I've always trained for the specific, specific projects, but right now, honestly, I just, 
like climbing is like my food. Like if I don't have it on a daily basis, I'm starving. And so that's what my climbing is right now. I just like have to be uplifted by being outside and going climbing. And, you know, I like to feel fit. And so this is probably honestly the first time in my life where I am very consciously trying not to focus on anything except for my family because I feel like that's where I've probably been lacking in the last in the last several years. I've got these, you know, these beautiful, wonderful kids and this amazing wife and I've been so focused on things that I have like some guilt there, I guess. And um, that that's what I want to focus on right now. Um that isn't to say that I don't dream about things all the time. Like I think it's just built within me to, um, you know, research climbs around the world, and you know, I have these ideas of going to other big ball locations and more remote places and finding the climbs that I feel like are safe enough but adventurous enough. And um, you know, I'm always thinking about that stuff. I think writing this book though is an was a bit of an attempt to become a better storyteller because if you want to truly make an impact, um, like a lasting impact, being a good storyteller is absolutely crucial. And I don't know what form that's going to take at this point, but, um, you know, in the future. But I think being able to process thoughts and effectively tell stories is, um, you know, one of the sort of the greatest talents that you can foster. Um, and so I, I think I'm, I'm back at school kind of in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, this has been great. Thank you. And uh, <clears throat> I hope if the people that have listened through this podcast, if you if you have yet to be uh, compelled to go pick up and read this book, then I've really failed. <laughs> I feel like I've failed. Um, there will be an accompanying uh, written review where I will try again um, to talk about why I think this book uh, really matters. And um, uh, yeah, I'm grateful for the time today. And uh, I'm grateful that you spent about a year uh working on this uh book thing to document you it's it's been a pretty remarkable life i mean you've you've had some real opportunities to do some cool stuff and some you've had some hard stuff happen and um i think the the transparency uh with which you've kind of let all of us in on it is pretty remarkable and there are so many different things um for people to resonate with how we think about our own relationships with our parents, how we think about our own relationships with our partners, our friends, etc. Um, you've 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 kind of led the way uh, in a significant way, I think, to help us better think through some of those things. So, um, thank you for all of that. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thanks for um, just letting me into this world. It's been cool. Well, cool. Well, on that note, I will let you uh, get back to the family. Uh, so, um, yeah, but, uh, thanks again for this. That's it for this edition of the blister podcast. Many thanks to Tommy Caldwell for the conversation, and you should definitely go pick up his book, the push. Thanks also to our strikingly handsome audio engineer, Justin Bob, who just texted me some very sage advice, given that I had to get up really, really early to edit this podcast quote, drink some high brew double exclamation point end quote. Yep, that's just some more solid advice from J-Bob, as always. Till next time, check out what we're up to over at blisterreview.com, and we will talk to you next week.